You're listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. I think it's time we start asking some very important questions here about when we get our basic freedoms back. I'd really like to know when we can count the days or when can we set up some kind of metric for when we don't have to listen to the covid panic brigade anymore about how we live our individual lives. If people want to stay locked away, if they want to wait another year, they can stay home, especially once you've had what, 90 days, 120 days to get the vaccine. At some point, we can't all be held hostage by this idea that the government can provide perfect safety because it clearly can't. So you have to wonder what it's going to take. When are people going to wake up and and understand that those who are calling the shots right now, they don't care about any of this stuff. They don't care about the destruction of the businesses. They don't care about your loss of freedom. They don't care that you have to go walking in parks outside right now with a mask on as if that's necessary, as if that's rooted in the science. If we don't ask the questions and force them to babble on with their BS answers, this doesn't stop anytime soon. They keep saying, oh, people think we're done with this. Oh, no, we don't think we're done because we know that the little tyrants aren't going to let go. But there are tyrants online, too. And as you know, they're shutting down speech that they don't like all the time. But you can do something about that. You can tell the big tech corporations, you can tell the social media giants enough is enough by anonymizing your Internet activity. That way you can surf the web freely without wondering who's going to get a hold of your search history or viewing habits or what they'll do with that information. Do you want the government you're reading over your shoulder every time you go online? <laughs> I don't think so. There's never been a more important time than now to protect your Internet activity. That's why I urge you to get ExpressVPN. When you search for something online, you click a video, a link, it gets tracked by big tech companies and they will sell this information. And who knows what they'll do with it down the line. That's why I use ExpressVPN because companies can't see my IP address at all. My identity is anonymized by a secure VPN server and my data is encrypted for maximum protection. ExpressVPN is easy to use. Just download the app on your phone or computer, tap one button and you are protected. Stop handing over your data to big tech companies and the government. Defend your rights with the VPN I trust for online protection. Visit expressvpn.com slash buck. That's expressvpn.com slash buck to get three extra months free. Just go to expressvpn.com slash buck now to learn more. Well, let's start with a very straightforward question for Dr. Fauci and all the people who act like he's some kind of a pandemic hero, like he's the guy who's known all along what we have to do. Just listen to Fauci and it all gets better. Let's start with this question. When do we never have to hear from him ever again? That's what I would want to know. When will he just go away and or, or go back to being the old bureaucrat who will say things like wash your hands, mitigate, you know, take mitigation measures. When do we get to hear that about the flu, not about covid? Because that's what this guy did for like the last 20 years or so. A lot of talk about the flu from him in the media. Once once a year, some local news outfit would put out a story about, oh, Dr. Fauci, who's the director of the National Institute for Allergy and Infectious Disease. This guy is a middling bureaucrat at best. 
And he has been given more power and unaccountable power of that than any than honestly any federal government employee in my lifetime. I can't think of anybody else who's been able to tell you you have to strap cloth over your face. You have to restrict your breathing indoors, outdoors, because he says so. And what makes it worse is that the whole time there's this pretense that it's not really his decision. It's the politicians, you know, the policymakers. They're the ones that are actually making it. No, that's that's not really true, because they point at Fauci and say it's the science. The experts, I'm just following the science and the scientists say, I'm just letting the politicians know you see the game. Nobody's accountable then. Nobody actually has to answer any real questions about this. They just tell you, shut up and do what you're told. They've been telling us that for a year. I am honestly appalled at how much the American people have gone along with this nonsense. I'm not saying it's all nonsense, okay? I've got a vaccine appointment. I know that COVID's real. I just had it. Like, I'm, when I say nonsense, I'm talking about masking up outside. I'm talking about masking up between bites. I'm talking about telling us to forget that for the last hundred years, it never occurred to anybody to think that it was some great public health measure to wear a mask all the time during respiratory virus season to save lots and lots of lives. Right. That somehow we just magically stumbled upon this. Oh, and it's not because there was a revelation or some scientific advance about all of it. No, no. It was a little over a year ago now that people went into a panic and like some kind of emotional security blanket. All of a sudden, the one thing they thought they could do that would save them was masking because social distancing is is preposterous. It's just basically avoid human beings as much as you can. That's what the real guidance is. Avoid being close to people, which obviously does not work as a policy avoiding people as a matter of science yeah of course if you don't see anybody you're not going to get a transmissible aerosolized virus from them but we've been we've been dragged through madness here they just they just clarify the cdc guidance on getting it from surfaces And, and one of the problems is that yeah theoretically a lot of things are possible but you never worry about it you certainly don't base policy on it Theoretically, we could be invaded by Norway next week. You can't tell me that can't happen, but we don't sit around worried about that. We don't spend a lot of time and resources concerned about that. But look at the way they even talk about surfaces and transmission of COVID on surfaces. Now they're saying it's it's really, really, really unlikely. It's like a one in 10,000 shot you're going to get it from. And you can't even really come up with numbers for this, because what does that even mean? If you're near somebody who has COVID, it's a one in 10,000 chance you'll get it from a surface. But the, the point is, in the early days of this, people were wiping down their groceries with Lysol. The, the food they were eating, they were they were worried about. There were all these panic porn stories about how frozen food shipped from China has you know COVID on it or something. It was all nonsense. Total nonsense. But oh no, now they really know what to do. Now they really know. Look, I, I don't I don't rehash the past of, a, of the pandemic here. Just as some kind of catharsis, although it is fun to point out what a a clown Fauci has been and how wrong he's been. I actually do it because I want people to understand that they need they need this this grip 
that the Fauciites have over their minds to release. Because they're not going to just let it go. They're not going to say, you know what, you're right. Uh, We've made a lot of poor decisions here. We're going to allow human beings to just make their own determinations. They They won't do it. When do we get to go back to normal? Now, this is going to be a big debate. This is going to be a big fight because their version of normal will be mostly allowed to do things that you used to do before the pandemic, but you're going to have to get a booster vaccine every year and you're going to have to await the public health measures that we come up with every year during flu season to prevent flu and covid And if we see a spike, there's going to be more shutdowns and lockdowns. And their version of normal is that you get a little bit of your freedom back over time, but they can always still take it away from you. They don't want to accept that this was an entirely aberrant emergency session the last 12 months that we should all just completely reject going forward as a means of, of living our lives. They, they have not reached that point yet. And they can't even justify what's been done up to this point. They don't even, they don't even have answers. You, you, want, you want receipts, so to speak? You want me to prove what I mean by this? Dr. Fauci was asked on Morning Joe, which what do you have to know about Morning Joe other than that's one of the favorite Fauciite hangouts? It's for people who are so smart. Remember, remember Morning Joe himself last week going on some tirade like a lunatic about how all the stupid Trumpers won't get vaccines and fine, you're a moron. I'll go to a game. Really? Do, do you actually ever read anything, Joe Scarpa? The answer is no. The guy's a, a buffoon. He's really, it's embarrassing. To know where the most vaccine hesitancy actually is, it's not Trump supporters. Not Trump supporters, Joe Scarborough, you scum. But still, it was fun to go on that angry rant, you know, self-righteousness. Yeah. And having Mika go, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Mika's just there. Oh, oh, my gosh. Another case of nepotism. Fauci was asked on that show about ignoring um, his advice on masks and social distancing in Texas and how Texas is doing great, actually doing great. Here's the Fauci answer. Play two. Yeah, you know, it's it can be confusing because you may see a lag and a delay because often you have to wait a few weeks before you see the effect of what you're doing right now. You know, there there are a lot of things that go into that. I mean, when you say that they've they've had a lot of uh, activity on the outside, like ball games. I'm not really quite sure. It could be they're doing things outdoors. You know, it's very difficult to just one-on-one compare that. You just have to see in the long range. I hope they continue to tick down. If they do, that would be great. But there's always the concern when you pull back on methods, particularly things like indoor dining and bars that are crowded, you can see a delay and then all of a sudden tick right back up. We've been fooled before by situations where people begin to open up, nothing happens, and then all of a sudden, several weeks later, things start exploding on you. So we got to be careful we don't prematurely judge that. Premature. You can't judge it. Premature. It's been four weeks, Fouch. It's been four weeks already, buddy. Going on week five here. Really? This, this is the equivalent. Fauci is the epidemiological equivalent of a guy who tells you every day that stock is going to go down, that stock is going to go down. 
and it keeps going up and up and up. And then eventually, after saying every day for a month or two months, that stock's going down, it does actually go down because that's just what happens. And he goes, see, I told you it's because of the public health measures. This guy is atrocious, but people are so intellectually insecure. They attach themselves to him and they can't they can't fathom for a second. Wow, maybe he really doesn't know very much. Maybe he isn't some policy epidemiology god who is leading us down the right path this whole time. Maybe, in fact, if we have allowed for more state and local improvisation without the entirety of the Democrat Party and the corporate media terrifying everybody and leveraging this for political gain, we could have seen what actually works and what doesn't. In fact, there's been some of that, as you know, with Florida and a few other states that refused to go along with the panic. But what does it look like? I mean, they, they did this last June in states like New York, where I am. So I was paying close attention to it. They said, here's what we need for different phases of reopen. Right. What does that look like nationally? They won't tell us. Why not? They, they say that this is all about the numbers. This is all about the science. How come they can't explain to us what does it look like? Is it cases at, at zero? Because that's insane. But that's kind of the level they're, they're setting us up for here, that they'll keep doing stuff. They'll keep harassing and annoying everybody under the, uh, under the promise that they're saving so many lives. Right? We have more than a half million people have died from COVID, but Fauci wants you to believe that the mitigation measures have been really successful. So we need to keep them in place. God forbid we lose those mitigation measures because the virus would spread and some people would die from it. Wait a second. That's already been happening all the time for the last year. And I know they'd say, well, it would be so much worse. Really? Look at the numbers. At least 30 percent of the country has been exposed to this and had it even without knowing it based on the serology testing and a simple extrapolation of how many people have been infected. Um nationwide for cases that we catch versus cases cases that are actually proven do you think that these people that are that are showing up like michael osterholm and dr fauci and and uh, scott gottlieb and these people you keep seeing on tv that they're all of a sudden really really smart and wise and make great decisions these people are feckless bureaucrats always have been you know, it's like James Comey is in charge of national health and therefore economic policy. But everyone goes, well, he was FBI director. Yeah, we all know how that went. But they don't even force Fauci to answer the real questions, do they? Occasionally he gets asked something and then he just babbles. What was his answer? I played it for you a minute ago. You know, it could be up, down, left, right. You know, a few weeks, you know, what could happen is there could be a plateau and the plateau could go up or could or, or a plateau is flat, you know, like a pancake, and it could stay there for a while. Or maybe the pancake gets a little fluffy, it gets bigger. Then you got a big plateau. I, I don't know. I doubt that the federal government will be the main mover of a vaccine passport concept. They may be involved in making sure things are done fairly and equitably, but I doubt if the federal government is going to be the leading element of that. And I do believe that there will be individual entities that will do that. There may be theaters that say you don't get in unless you have proof of vaccination. There may be colleges or, or, or other educational institutions that do that. I'm not saying they should or that they would, but I'm saying you could foresee how an independent entity might say, 
well, we can't be dealing with you unless we know you're vaccinated, but it's not going to be mandated from the federal government. Dr. Fauci there with the nice freedom you got. Be a shame if vaccine passports happen to it. Oh, yeah, it's not it's not going to come as a mandate from the federal government. They're just going to work behind the scenes as they're already doing to, to do it uh, via the private sector. That's right. The threat of the public sector and the private sector now in politicized fashion coming together. We're seeing that all over the place, aren't we? They say, oh, but the private sector can do whatever it wants when they're in power. That's the left's attitude about it all. All of a sudden, the left is hyper uh, regulatory in every sense when they're not getting their way. But the moment that they actually have their people calling the shots, there's no there's no sense of shared principle or fair play or even constitutional protection. If They can find a way around it. They'll do whatever they can, whatever they have to do. Deal with it. They're winning. They're in charge. That's their attitude. And now you see they don't want the Biden administration to take the heat for vaccine passports. You know why? Well, because there's a lot of vaccine hesitancy among the minority community. And there are a lot of minority community members who are Biden voters. And so as much as they would love to make this about crushing the the MAGA anti-science people, they are smart enough to figure out. I mean, the, the Fauciites and the Biden administration to figure out that vaccine passports are going to cause problems for a lot of people that are Democrat voters and Democrat constituents. And so it's not actually a red state MAGA hat wearing, uh, you know, slap down. It's going to affect a lot of people. So what are they going to do? They're going to try to make this. They're going to outsource the tyranny to the private sector. That's the plan. They're going to make every every in every way they can. They're going to because they're just putting out the information. I mean, you know, they're just they're just putting out the information, you know. You know, maybe you need to do this. I don't know. You know, maybe the private sector will come along and make determinations about this. Keep in mind, folks, that the vaccines, from what we've already seen, there's a chance that they're going to require booster shots down the line. I'm even seeing that there are places now that for travel purposes require you to get a negative PCR test, even if you're vaccinated. And, and you have to get vaccinated even if you've already had the virus like I have. This a year ago would have been considered insane because it's unreasonable. All this policy is based now is, is being based upon unreasonable safety measures. Right. This this is now it's as though the people, the the idiots who came up with the beeping noise on trucks when they go backwards that, you know, you can't turn off beep, beep, by, by the way. Plenty of times people are getting hit by trucks that with the beeping on because they're so used to hearing it, they don't care. But those people, it's like it's like the worst elements of OSHA or something are, are running national. It's not just virus policy. It's national economic policy. This is the whole country. This is our ability to open up. And this is your your ability to go for a walk in the park without having a mask on. You realize they were shutting down parks in some places in this country because of the science. These people are out of their minds. There is no data, no data whatsoever to show that it is a reasonable concern that you are going to get the virus outdoors from people. None. Now, what they do is they say, oh, well, here's a case. We found a case. There's seven billion people in the world. Yeah, I'm sure there are cases of all kinds of things that happen. But you don't build your entire COVID policy around the lightning strike 
You don't build your entire COVID policy around, well, you know, I was vaccinated, but I st- but I still got the virus. OK, well, if you're one in 50,000 people, sometimes that's, you know, just the way the things go down. That's the way it happens. We don't all live our lives with, oh, but even if you're vaccinated, you could still get it or give it to people. No, no, no. Or, or just get used to this. Get used to more of these feckless bureaucrats, these these imbeciles who want to just poke and prod at you like the little busybody tyrants they are. They want to, you know, they're going to kick your two-year-old off a plane because she's not masked like they did at Spirit Airlines. Or get ready for that because they're not giving this up. They're going to they're going to they're going to pull back a little bit on the measures, but they want to be able to reinstitute them at any point in time. That's the world we're going to be living in now. Anytime the public health measures have to come back based on completely unreasonable risk parameters. Mask up, baby. Get ready for it. Not just this summer, next year, the year after that. Major League Baseball moves its game and we'll get into where it has moved the all-star game for this summer because that's certainly going to be something that uh, it's going to be tough to explain if you care about facts which the woke uh, the woke crowd does not they just want what they want and they want it as soon as they want it and it's about the mob mentality Uh, but after all the stuff that we heard after how important it was for us to make sure that major league baseball didn't have the game in Georgia to punish the state of Georgia, which just went for a Democrat, just went for uh, two Democrat senators and a Democrat in the presidential election. Now now it has to be punished. But it just goes to show you that it, it doesn't have to be reasonable criticism and the kind of stuff that can be used to shut you down, the kind of things that will get you in trouble and perhaps even make you the target of the woke mob. Doesn't have to be rooted in fact. It can just be whatever the mob decides. And if you've tried to share your opinions uh, politically on social media lately, you know it's really hard to have a civil conversation. And you also never know what kind of spies are out there looking at everything you say to try to maybe use it against you. Well, luckily, there's caucusroom.com now. This is a social media network exclusively for conservatives. Caucus Room is an online community for conservatives to gather and engage locally. Only real people who are verified conservatives can become caucus room members. The caucus room will never share your information with anyone ever. The sign up process ensures you're communicating with real conservatives in your neighborhood. No bots or trolls. It's a great way to get engaged on issues where you can make the biggest difference locally. At caucus room, you can participate in live virtual meetings that are so secure. The platform played host to over a dozen virtual Republican uh, Party conventions last year. You can share jokes, news, find ways to get involved with causes near you without the fear of Silicon Valley overlords stomping on you. Caucus Room is made by conservatives for conservatives to get organized and make a difference. Join the Buck Sexton listeners group. That's right. There's a Buck Sexton listeners group on caucusroom.com. That's C-A-U-C-U-S-R-O-O-M. Caucusroom.com. Join the Buck Sexton listeners group to interact with other listeners just like you. But as a Texan, let me say that I'm a great sports fan of all of our teams across the state. Uh, Baylor and University of Houston. Baylor won last night. Uh, But I think it was a disaster, and I'm enormously disappointed, and it was a confrontation, a wrong confrontation in the face of reality. A confrontation in the face of reality. Because Texas Rangers Stadium... Had people in it last night. 
Oh my gosh, no way. You've got to be kidding me. No, oh, it's so, so awful that people were going to a baseball game without all the social distancing. Where's the social distancing? Oh my gosh, where are the little pedals for your feet so you know where to stand? What do you do about the pedals and you need to have... I mean, honestly, why don't we just get even more absurd? There are a couple ways we can go. You can take my approach here and you can fight against the madness and the absurdity in whatever ways you can. Or maybe we just get so crazy. Maybe we take their logic and, and turn the heat up so much that the lockdown left, the Fauciites finally decide, OK, well, well, that's crazy. We can't do that. You know, fine. Let's have Texas Rangers Stadium open and we can have people walking around with measuring tape with measuring tape uh, making sure that they're you know six feet apart but you know in schools it's now three feet apart and what is all this based off of rough estimates you know a guess the thing about vaccines is that at least you can look at hard data real numbers there's no hard data about whether three feet or five feet or what kind of distancing or anything else in fact the only real data we have about transmission outside is that it's Almost impossible. But because I can't say 100% impossible, the, the, that leaves the crack in the dam for the Fauciite madness. Oh, you can't. It's not fact check. Not true. You need mitigation because one in 100,000, one in 100,000 people are, you know, in this place where they could get it. So if one in 100,000, you can't take that risk. And that's where we are. That is what we're seeing here. The Fauciites running around here. Oh, no. We're all supposed to be so upset. Texas Rangers Stadium. What's going to happen now? All the libs and the journos. Uh, they're playing baseball in a packed house. They're so upset. You know, this is the only way this gets this gets better is if we finally say, wait a second, look at Texas. Look at Florida. Look at states that are opening. They're doing just fine. They're not having a surge. A plateau turns into a surge. No, they're just letting people live their lives. And it's okay. It's not perfect, but it's okay. We can do that again. This is the only way. That's why I'm so happy to see that the governor of Texas, Abbott, has banned vaccine passports. Uh, Here he is. Play clip four. Every day, Texans return to normalcy as more people get the COVID vaccine. In fact, this week, Texas will surpass 13 million doses administered. Those shots help slow the spread of COVID, reduce hospitalizations, and reduce fatalities. But as I have said all along, these vaccines are always voluntary and never forced. Government should not require any Texan to show proof of vaccination and reveal private health information just to go about their daily lives. That is why I issued an executive order that prohibits government-mandated vaccine passports in Texas. We will continue to vaccinate more Texans and protect public health, and we will do so without treading on Texans' personal freedoms. Like I said, the only way they have to finally remove their grip off your throat, off your face, 
The lockdowners with their little mask and double mask. Why not triple mask? They don't have an answer. If it saves one life, I don't know. Strap on three masks. Make it four masks. And yet the only way that it really goes away is if there are states where people don't have to deal with the stupidity anymore, don't have to deal with the madness. Large states with with you know sizable populations. Sorry, I mean, I, I, you know, South Dakota is a great place, but South Dakota has a population density similar to, you know, the islands of of Micronesia. It's not the same thing. Uh, so it's d- a different because density does matter for these things. But Texas, Florida, those are big states, big populations. And when they say, OK, yeah, we're still going to get the vaccines out there to people, but we're also going to stop the unnecessary agitations and, and irritations that people have to suffer through. Because some people are so scared all the time. You know, in the state of Florida, you're looking at counties now where they have 75 percent of people are vaccinated. Once we get that number closer to, you know, 90 percent, then you can assume that the overall hospitalizations and fatalities from covid are going to absolutely plummet. They're already going down. They're already going in the right direction, but they're going to plummet. And we are now at the point where we can see it. And all this other stuff they're doing, the vaccines and herd immunity are what's getting us out of this. The other stuff is theater. That, that's the essential point here. This other, oh, you know, you got to mask up between bites, mask up outside, social distance, wash your hands. Notice you don't hear as much about washing hands anymore because they estimate it was in a New York Post piece today. Your chance of getting this from surfaces is like one in 10,000 cases or something, if that. I mean, it's it's tiny. Oh, that's so weird, because I remember when when you couldn't actually get Purell. And by the way, I've been I'm just going to say this. And everyone who knows me knows this. I've been a a hand sanitizer. uh, I've been mocking hand sanitizer obsession for a long time. because I'm like, this is not what's saving people, folks. Okay, it's not. Oh, got to use the hand sanitizer or else you'll be at a plateau and then you'll get a surge. No, hand sanitizer, you know, for and they, they give it out to you and they give it to me when I get on a plane. This is theater. The data actually shows this is theater. There's no question about this. You don't need to use hand sanitizer. It's not saving you from the virus. It's theoretically possible. A lot of things are theoretically possible. Got to open up places and show. And, and the, the thing is, I believe there's also a real incentive for many of the people that have been big Fauci and lockdown proponents. They don't want to see what happens when places open up more uh, because we'll have even better data sets to show how much of the annoying stuff. Basically, we, we had all this infection and it, it was terrible. We had all these hospitalizations and death. But their premise all along has been to make life more miserable, more lonely, more awful for all of us because it's saving us. The more we see that we were going to have a lot of infections and this was going to spread across the country regardless, you know, the more it becomes clear that they're going to have to make defenses like they have of masking uh, mask mandates where the CDC's own numbers say it's about a 1% reduction in cases. Really? And that's within the margin of error, so it could be no reduction in cases. Is that what we were promised? You know, that's why we had all this mask propaganda all the time everywhere, because it was going to reduce it one percent, one point five percent. That's from the CDC's numbers. That's what the mask mandates have done. Now, you could say that they can come up with some lab experiment where somebody wears a mask perfectly and they only deal with one mist of spray. But those aren't actually real world numbers. That's what people don't understand or haven't understood in this. 
that we don't live in laboratories. We don't live in clinical settings. Anyway, I'm, I'm happy to see there are some people that are finally waking up to this. I'm happy to see there are some people who are understanding that you're going, we're going to have to stop the madness. It's not just going to fade out. You're going to have to finally say, sorry, mask shamer, back off. And we need some states where they say this is no longer the law. So then the mask shamers can't say, it's a law. It's for your health. Uh. And I was in the gym yesterday. Nobody in the gym, uh, oh, you know, over the age, honestly, of 40. There were about uh, eight of us in there. And I mean, everyone's you know sweating and, you know, their mask is coming down for a second as they're and, and they got to pull it back up and all the stuff I'm sitting here. This is just it just adds to our anxiety. It's dehumanizing. It makes us look at each other as though we're all just vectors of disease. It's so stupid. And if it wasn't so stupid, they wouldn't have just come up with this as a panic policy less than a year ago. That's all you have to know. But people, I know they think everyone thinks I'm they think I'm crazy. Well, that's that's fine. I, I wore my mask pointlessly for as much as I did, and I still got sick. I still got COVID, and that's really the reality of what we've all been through as a country for the last year. Is the president going to change the way that he talks about the new Georgia voting law? Because uh, in that interview that you referenced, he said the law would end voting at 5 o'clock when working people are just getting off. And he said it would end voting hours early so working people can't cast their vote after their shift is over. But the Washington Post gave that claim for Pinocchios because that part of the law gives counties the option to extend voting hours. And so I'm just curious if the president is going to change the way that he's talking. Well, fundamentally, the president doesn't believe it should be made harder to vote. He believes it should be easier. Uh, and this bill makes it harder to request and return an absentee ballot. It collapses the length of Georgia's runoff election, making it harder for large jurisdictions to offer early voting. It imposes rigid new restrictions on local officials' ability to set polling hours to suit the needs of voters in their county. Those are all pieces of the bill. So his uh, view is that we need to make it easier and not harder to vote. And that will continue to be what he advocates for. Yeah, so I'm just like not going to address the fact that the president is just like lying about stuff here because like let's just make it about the broad strokes, you know, which is that it makes it harder. Okay, um, they they know that they're a little bit caught on this one. They they know this doesn't look good. They know they got a problem, and so with that, I turn around and I tell you, um, you have to now look at the moves that are being taken that that Biden was very supportive of. They act like he wasn't supportive. They're trying to rewrite history and the media goes along with it. But they are rewriting history here because Biden was supportive of Major League Baseball moving the All-Star game. And this is symbolic of the entire woke mindset. They're moving the baseball game from uh, Atlanta, Georgia to Denver, Colorado. And we've got a great radio station, 93 Freedom 93.7 in Denver that carries this show. And we're very thankful for that partnership. We also have a, a huge audience on that station, which we appreciate because we've got a, a wonderful team buck squad in the Denver area and the Colorado and well, in the state of Colorado in general. Uh, so I'm happy for you guys. You're getting the all star game for those of you who like baseball. We know producer Mark loves baseball. And so good for you. But if we're going to compare election laws and i'm sure the denver residents listen or the uh colorado residents listening to this 
know this already. Turns out that even under this bill, Georgia has more early voting days than Colorado does. Colorado has a voter ID requirement in place. So what they've done is they created a whole narrative. The Democrats created a whole narrative around the state of Georgia. And then they moved uh, based upon that. They took action to punish Georgia. And now the, the moment that you step back and you see what their punishment has resulted in, it just shows you what a bunch of phonies and hypocrites they are. Oh, that's right. Georgia's so awful. It's Jim Crow 2.0. I mean, it's embarrassing to even repeat. This is a quote from Joe Biden. Jim Crow on steroids. It's embarrassing to even repeat the thing that the president of the United States said on this. And now you see what their response is. Now you see what they decide to do as a result of it. And you realize, oh, so this was just all for show. This was just silly. It wasn't really about Georgia being such a a bad state that's not taking the the necessary actions. You know, Georgia being a state that is making everything so much hard. No, no. It was we want to mobilize the base. We want to mobilize the woke. And we're giving them something to uh to go after here, it doesn't matter that it's not true. It doesn't matter that it's unfair. This is classic Alinsky. We're going to have to start talking more about Saul Alinsky on this show. And and I think that everyone's going to start to realize that when you when you understand the way community organizers do their business, you understand the way the Democrat Party and the media work together in this. Um. And here, remember some some of the rules for radicals, right? A good tactic is one your people enjoy. A good tactic is one people your people enjoy. Uh, that's why social media and virtue signaling—that's straight out of that's actually a rule for radicals. Uh, for from Saul Alinsky, that's one that you see with all the social media posting, right? People do this, and they feel like they're part of a group. They're yeah. Georgia's so racist with these laws and it's Jim Crow on steroids. And look what Biden said and pull the all-star game and all these companies, all these corporations, they get joy out of it too. They're senior officers. You know, the people that actually run these companies, they get to go to their fancy golf club. They get to go to their fancy country club and people there, the, the people who know what what bull crap it is will just keep to themselves because we just leave people alone. That's the conservative mentality. But the uh, the libs in their midst will come up to them. Yeah, you're standing up for voting rights. Yeah. A good tactic is one your people enjoy and ridicule is man's most potent weapon. This is why the left does not allow jokes anymore. Every joke, every joke is sexist. Every joke is racist. Every joke is something that is literally violence. Because when you start to make fun of these people, they lose their power. I'm talking about the left. I'm talking about Democrats. When you start to make fun of the stupidity of Joe Biden here on things like moving the Major League Baseball game because of of it being Jim Crow on steroids. I mean, there were a whole bunch of things that he said, but all of them were really dumb. 
And then you see they move it to a state with even more restrictive. By the way, restrictive is such a loaded term in this regard. All elections are restricted to U.S. citizens, to people of a certain age, to people who live in a certain district or in a certain state. There's restrictions of all kinds. Voting is a process. This would be like saying, oh, you know, it's not fair. We lost that baseball game, but but there's so many restrictions in baseball. You know, you got to hit before you run and you got to. Well, yeah, that is the process. To call it restrictive is stupid. Doesn't mean anything. But a good tactic is one your people enjoy. And virtue signaling is delightful for the libs. What happened to Virginia? It's a state where I actually have family that lives in Virginia. I spent a lot of time there when I worked at the CIA in northern Virginia. And it's a place that we used to think of as, as at least purple. But now it feels pretty blue. And some of the policies going on there are also what you'd expect in a place like New York or California. Can this be turned around? we got somebody that says, yes, Glenn Youngkin is with us now. He is the former co-CEO of the Carlisle Group. He's a native Virginian. He's running for governor. He's going to talk to us about a state that we got to put back in play. Uh, Glenn, thanks so much for joining us. Buck, thank you for having me. And you hit it right on the nose. Uh, Virginia has really moved so far left over the last few years since the Democrats took over our House and Senate and and the governorship. And that's why I'm running, because I just don't recognize her. And I think it doesn't reflect really where Virginia should be, could be and will be, because it used to be the best state in America to live and work and raise a family. And I just decided last summer that I was going to quit my job and really focus on putting her back there, putting her back where she belongs and is that best state to be in. Now, Vir- Virginia is one of a, of a handful of states that in the last couple election cycles, I mean, Georgia obviously comes to mind. Georgia's getting a lot of attention right now because of what happened with Major League Baseball. But uh, Virginia feels pretty solid blue now, and that's certainly not trending the way that uh, any conservatives wanted to. What, what happened? T- tell us that first. How is it that you went from being a state where it, it felt like there was a pretty good chance of a, of a GOP win, you go back to the Bush administration to now it's pretty much top to bottom at the statehouse level, blue controlled, isn't it? It is, sadly. And it doesn't have to be that way. In fact, what's happened in Virginia over the course of the last you know, roughly 10 years is that we have had a demographic shift where particularly in northern Virginia, we've seen the minority population become the majority population. And yet the Republican Party has not done a good job at all in engaging with minority populations who, oh, by the way, have conservative values and just want to be listened to. And so that's one of the things that we are doing very, very intently is engaging with minority populations all over the Commonwealth. And what I hear over and over again is we actually have Republican shared values. We believe in the things that Republicans believe in, but we just haven't had the engagement from the Republican Party in a long time. And so that has been really encouraging when I hear that message from folks all over Virginia who are ready to vote Republican and just want to make sure that there is a gubernatorial candidate that listens to them and understands their their desires to have small government, low taxes, low regulations, standing up for our constitutional rights. A strong defense. I mean, these are Republican values shared by the minority communities, and yet we just haven't engaged with them. And that's one of the big things that I'm doing in our, in our campaign. We're speaking to Glenn Youngkin. He's formerly the co-CEO of the Carlisle Group, and he is running for governor of Virginia, which the race is uh, a little, little bit off into the distance right now, folks, but it's going to come up very quickly. And Virginia is a, a critical state for us to 
start to show some conservative gains in after what feels like a lot of a lot of losses for a number of years now. And, and Glenn, your your state politically, unfortunately, is uh, perhaps most well known these days for having a governor who falls in this category, Governor Ralph Northam of how the heck did this guy even keep his job? Never mind how did he even get the job. What has the Northam regime meant for the state of Virginia? It's meant an enormous amount of challenge and candidly embarrassment. And this is why the entire Commonwealth of Virginia seems to really be paying attention to this election and ready to elect a Republican governor. Uh, what, what, What Governor Northam has done both personally in his behavior but also what he has uh, allowed legislatively has has really been terrible for Virginia. We first have all of the issues around how he's handled the pandemic. He's kept our state closed unnecessarily. Our schools are still 70 percent partially or fully closed for student in-person education. It has absolutely disadvantaged Virginia's kids, hurt families, and it's unnecessary and it's unnecessary And yet he still continues to not make a statement about getting our schools open. Now, he's kept businesses closed unnecessarily. We had 1.5 million Virginians file for first-time unemployment benefits last year. And in my view, it was wholly unnecessary to keep the clamp down on business the way he did. You look at a state like Florida that, that, that was much more practical and yet safe in the way they opened up. And not only have their has their economy and, and their job market flourished, but they have the exact same health numbers as Virginia. And so it just hasn't made any sense. And then on top of that, our governor has absolutely allowed our Democrat led House of Delegates and Senate run amok. And there's been so much legislation that has been passed that's hurt police. That's actually encroached on our cons- on our conservative values. It's encroached on our constitutional rights. And this is why Virginians are coming together. This is why Republicans are going to win this year, simply because it's a reaction to the amazing overreach that has happened in Richmond. And now we're seeing it in Washington as well. And this is not acceptable to to Virginians. And I've heard it over and over again. But I have traveled 12,000 miles in two months. And what I have heard from Virginians over and over again is we are ready for a change and we're ready for an outsider. We're ready for a business person who understands how to deliver results. And it's been incredibly encouraging. As an outsider, what what got you motivated? I mean, you're not somebody that's spent a lot of time uh, running for state state office in the past, working in the state house. You come from the Carlisle Group, a very large private equity firm. You come from it. You ran it as co-CEO. So why why now? Why get involved? What do you what do you see as the contributions to this fight that you can make? Well, last summer I was overcome by the fact that our governor had done such an amazingly poor job in managing through the pandemic. And I watched what two generations of Republican leadership, the McAuliffe administration followed by the North administration, which actually is the McAuliffe Northam administration that had done such damage to our business, to our business environment, where we're seeing some of our strongest companies move away. Norfolk Southern is now headquartered in Atlanta, Georgia. Advanced Auto Parts is now headquartered in Raleigh, North Carolina. 25% of Virginia's businesses were partially or fully closed last year. 
And I just couldn't believe that that was happening in the Commonwealth that I grew up in. And then on top of that, I've watched the Republican Party continue to find ways to lose year after year after year. And I did feel an amazing conviction in my heart that it was time for a different kind of leader, somebody who was not a politician, who actually was going to bring different perspectives on how to get Virginia moving, how to stand up for our constitutional rights, how to actually run the place better. I mean, goodness gracious, our DMV and our, our Virginia Employment Commission are just so poorly run. That's because we keep sending the same kinds of people to do this, folks that have never really run anything. And so I actually got up from my desk last summer. I grabbed my wife. I told her I was going to quit my job and run for governor. Candidly, she asked me if I was having a midlife crisis. And I said, no, I'm having a Virginia crisis. And we committed ourselves to, to put forth this effort to really change the future of Virginia. And uh, that's what we feel like we're doing. And I feel so encouraged by all of the support we've had over the last few months. Glenn Youngkin, candidate for governor of Virginia. Glenn, we're going to follow this one closely. We'll have you back on as it gets uh, uh, closer on the calendar. Thanks so much. Well, I so appreciate you having me. I hope you have a blessed day. You too. But really quick, did they mention the bottom line number, which is the corona death rate? How does Florida's death rate compare to, say, I don't know, New York or California? Well, New York is one of the top in the country. Florida, there's 26 states that are higher than Florida per capita mortality. And there's 40 states that are higher than us for 65 and up mortality, which is that was our focus. And now, since we vaccinated so many seniors, we are seeing the hospitalizations among seniors plummet. So what we did has worked. Uh, and obviously they were in Florida for three months, 60 minutes, trying to drudge up any dirt that they could use to smear me. And the best they could come up with is a baseless conspiracy theory that was easily debunked, not just by me, which they had to edit out, but by two very prominent Democrats in the state of Florida. The mayor of Palm Beach County came out, a Democrat came out to say that not only was what 60 Minutes put out there about uh, Ron DeSantis untrue. It was intentionally untrue. That's right. This guy is the mayor of Palm Beach County. He came out and said that he offered and he this was in a public statement. He put this out in writing that he offered to explain to 60 Minutes what really happened. And 60 Minutes when it comes to vaccines and publics and all this 60 Minutes did not care. They were on a mission, and the mission was not truth. The mission was to attack Ron DeSantis. Ron DeSantis is terrifying to Democrats because he seems to understand the populist base of the Republican Party, and he understands how to govern well, and he understands how to handle the clownishly hostile corporate media which are really all just now adjuncts of the Democrat Party, and they should be embarrassed by this, but they're not. They actually revel in it. This is, how they, this is how they make the money they do. This is how they have the prominence they do, because they are essentially the shock troops of the Democrat Party. They're not going to walk away from that at any point in time coming up here. They, they like the way it is. They, they prefer things to be this way. But Ron DeSantis, first of all, he, he's talking about the results Florida is a large, populous state with with numerous major cities, and it's in the middle of the pack of the U.S. And remember, Florida was the place that was constantly attacked by the media, attacked by the media all the time for 
failing to abide by the same panic maneuvers of shutdown. Got to shut down your businesses. Got to shut down your restaurants that other states did. And now we see it had better results. Now we see that Florida had a better approach and they hate that. And they don't just hate it because of what it means for their power in the meantime. Uh, Right now. They also are very concerned about what it means for the long-term future of Democrat control in government. You know, you've got a Democrat president now. You've got a Democrat-controlled House and Senate, de facto Senate control. I think I think we can assume when I say Senate control, I know it's 50-50, guys, but we all know that the tie goes to the vice president who's a Democrat, right? So de facto Senate control. And you have this situation playing out right now where they beat Trump in part by claiming that they were listening to the science and that they were much more serious about dealing with the pandemic. Meanwhile, the actual implementation of covid policy was done mostly at the state level, really. And the states run entirely by Democrats, held up by the Democrat media as examples of what should be done, turned out to be disasters New York, California, New Jersey, Massachusetts. These states had terrible response to COVID Uh, by the numbers. I mean, what they did did not work. They do not have anything to point to to say, yeah, we were successful. And Florida took a different approach. But going forward, there's going to be this whole shift away from Oh, yeah, we said that Trump was so bad in the dealing with the virus and everything. And that's part of how they got Biden in to hold on a second. The Democrat, the Democrat way of handling the pandemic was actually really painful and disastrous for small businesses. It was really unnecessarily psychologically damaging to put all the the most strict mandates and, and stay in place orders and all this stuff. Maybe we shouldn't, you know, maybe more voters will think we shouldn't put. Democrats in charge of situations like this. Maybe the Democrats failed, you know, the same way that people tend to think that Democrats can be serious on national security issues until they actually have to make decisions that involve foreign policy and national security. And we see what the outcomes are. You know, the Obama administration was a a laughably, unfortunately, tragically in many ways too bad foreign policy. But it sure it sounded good to a lot of people. Not to me, but it sounded good to a lot of people before we actually saw what happened. But then in time, we realized, oh, no, they got big problems here. This is this has been a disaster. So what are they going to do? They're going to put everything. They're going to use every tool at their disposal to lie about this and to convince you that what you've observed, what you see happening here is not what you're actually observing and seeing. Here is. Don Lemon on how the real lie isn't the Biden lies that we've exposed where he's even getting four Pinocchios in the Washington Post fact check where he's clearly having the people in the White House cover for him after he said move Major League Baseball. But, oh, no, don't move the all star game. Maybe you should move this. Don Lemon's a perfect example. This guy is is somebody who should receive his paycheck from the DNC. I mean, he should just admit that he's a political operative pretending to be an objective journalist. But just like Tapper and uh, Cuomo and all the rest of them over there, Burnett, if anyone even watches that show, but I I guess some people do. 
you know, they're, they're all Democrat operatives pretending to be something else. And it, look, there's nothing illegal with being a Democrat operative. I mean, I think they're wrong, but they're allowed to do that. I just wish they'd be honest about it. I wish there wasn't the constant lies about it. Uh, and and here, for example, is Don Lemon um, on, on how Joe Biden's been exposed already as not only inept, but also untruthful. So what do the Democrats do in the media? They go on offense. Play seven. Uh, play eight. It is a Jedi mind trick. OK, I want you to think about this, right? Joe Biden's lie, big lie. Republicans are suddenly concerned about lies when they never even acknowledge the former guy was and is a serial liar. <laughs> now they're like, oh, my God, Joe Biden is lying. Really, Republicans? Did, did someone introduce the word lie back into your vocabulary recently? Because before you were like, lie, what is that? What's that mean? Uh, lie. I never heard of the word. <laughs> now you're concerned about lies? Come on now. <laughs> OK, so uh, the premise of all these laws, we have to remember, over the country was actually built on the election fraud lie. So now they're saying it's Joe Biden's lie when the whole, all these laws built on a lie. As I said, it's quite the Jedi mind trick. Yet it's easy to expose. I mean, Don Lemon is not very smart. That's not hard to figure out. Uh, But let's just deal with this for a second. The guy has a large platform and he is paid a lot of money to be dumb on television. But he's dumb in the right way as a Democrat. You got to be favorable for your party, for your side. Uh, What he's saying here is. First of all, he starts with the classic, well, Trump lied, so therefore you can't say that Biden's lying now. Well, what is that is what aboutism, right? This isn't this isn't actually people will say what aboutism when you're pointing out a lack of principle or hypocrisy. But you can't say, well, eh, you know, uh, Joe Biden's allowed to lie because Trump Trump used to lie. Well, no, I, I, I don't care that Trump used to say things. Yeah. Trump, did Trump lie about some stuff sometimes? Absolutely. Yeah, he did. We all know he did. I said it at the time, but he lied about things that generally didn't matter. And usually it was BSing more than an outright lie. And but but see, this is what what a perfect excuse. Well, because some other person lied. Now, now my guy gets to lie and you can't point it out. And then this whole thing about how all based on the election lie. No, they're, they're not. They're not changing early voting days or changing Dropbox locations because of any Trump election lie in Georgia. That's just another lie. Not true, but they exhaust you with the bull crap. That's the Democrat plan. Notice how Democrats go big as soon as they can, as soon as they have the power. They don't feel sheepish about it. They they don't feel like they need to hold back or they, they need to try to do, you know, whatever they can to make sure they bring the other side to the middle or anything. No, no, no. They see an opening, they go for it all the way. And now we've had a number of Republicans at the state level even decide that they are unwilling to hold to their principles and to hold the line. And it's just really discouraging. You had you had Christy Nome and I had people, I had you know, Nome fans out there, because I initially said she's capitulating uh, this is double speak on the whole transgender sports bill that she was supposed to sign in South Dakota. I said she's and now we see she's, you know, just a, a fraud on this issue. 
a lot of you don't know. You don't really understand. It's about the the you know the the procedure and the blah. No, no, no. She just didn't sign it. Okay. So and there are some people out there. Some of them, a couple of them, even listen to this right now, who wrote me you know nasty grams uh, about this on Instagram. And they should now say, Buck, you were right. I'm sorry, because I was right, because she was being a fraud and she was being disingenuous. There's another one that's coming up. But before I get into that, I just want to say that the left uses its power. And this is a big problem we have as conservatives, as as Republicans, because we we take a more, oh, let's let people do their own thing. Yeah, but we've got to when we have the opportunity to push policies, to push ideas that matter to us, we've got to do it. And stop being wimps about it. I mean, look at, for example, what goes on with the big social media companies. They're silencing you. They're not even hiding it anymore. They don't care. Twitter, Facebook, they were supposed to be open platforms, but they're not anymore. And they're targeting you. So let's do something about it. Instead of letting social media sites revoke your right to free speech, how about revoking their right to your data? Now, I know you could deactivate all your social media accounts, but that would be giving the left what they want in the first place. All right. Instead, use ExpressVPN. When you use ExpressVPN, you anonymize a lot of your online presence by hiding your IP address. This makes all of your online activity more difficult to trace and sell to advertisers. ExpressVPN couldn't be easier to set up. You just tap one button on your phone or computer and you're protected. ExpressVPN also encrypts 100% of your data to protect you from hackers and Internet bad guys. It's time to say no to censorship and take back your online privacy at expressvpn.com slash buck. By visiting my special link, you'll get an extra three months of ExpressVPN service for free. Expressvpn.com slash buck. That's expressvpn.com slash buck. I was told this week that the nation is looking at Arkansas because I have on my desk another bill passed by the General Assembly that is a product of the cultural war in America. I don't shy away from the battle when it is necessary and defensible, but the most recent action of the General Assembly, while well intended, is off course, and I must veto House Bill 1570. This is... The Republican governor of Arkansas vetoing what the what the left is calling an anti-transgender health care bill that would have prohibited physicians in the state of Arkansas from providing, quote, gender affirming procedures for trans people under the age of 18. Uh, That's a very delicate way of saying they want puberty blockers and even surgery and things like that. So your 12-year-old now in the state of Arkansas can get um, what they're calling gender. It's really gender transition surgery. That's what they used to call it. Notice they've had to change the name of the medical procedure. Now it's gender affirmation surgery. We're talking about for minors now. We're talking about for, for people who aren't even adults. And, and anyone who tells you, for example, that there is a uh, uh, there's a medical consensus or there's enough medical understanding of what even taking uh, puberty blockers, which I mean, this essentially is is very close to chemical castration, which is which is something that is done. Right. People take puberty blockers 
Um, and you're talking about the chemical castration, same similar drugs or same drugs, I believe, to chemical castration. And why is he why is he doing this? Um, why is he doing this? Because of the pressure. Because of the pressure. Our side cannot even count on people, cannot even count on people to stand for what they believe in when it really comes to it. Um, and I'm sorry, if you will not stand up to the woke left on transgender surgery for kids, you are not a leader that I can stand behind. You're not a Republican who deserves the support of conservatives and the, and the GOP base. So Asa Hutchinson, you know, they should. I don't know if Arkansas has, you know, recall as a possibility. Even I, I don't know what could be done with this guy. But all you need to know is he's he's not a fighter. He's not not willing to take the heat. Would much rather would much rather go along with what woke Inc. demands of him, and that's very that's very concerning. Because meanwhile, on the other side, they're just going all out. You'll notice they're not apologizing for the way they wield power. They're not slowing down one bit. They're, they just passed a $1.9 trillion Democrat wish list bill, and they were going to spend another $2 trillion now on infrastructure. It's not, not even really about infrastructure. Here's Senator Kennedy from Louisiana, Plain 9. Well, let, let's, let's leave La La Land for a while. This is not an infrastructure bill. Um, if you think this is an infrastructure bill, you probably better stay away from sharp objects. This is a um, this is a Green New Deal, yep. welfare, and reparations bill. Uh, being charitable, less than ten percent of the bill is devoted to infrastructure, and we don't even know what the projects are. You know who picks the projects? Speaker Pelosi, Senator Schumer, and President Biden. Now, one need not be clairvoyant to see that their projects are going to end up in New York and California and blue states. So there you have it. You've got a political slush fund. That's what it is. Democrats going on a spending spree under this rubric of of infrastructure. And it doesn't even matter. Notice they, they don't even care that this is going to be exposed as, as largely, you know, a lie, that it's just the calling it an infrastructure bill. No, that's, that's the veneer. That's the facade they put up. That's what they're, that's what they're really trying to do here. And uh, it, unfortunately, I think it's likely to be successful. Um, if, if they're able to get this thing through, they will spend a lot of money on things that they, that they want and think about the effects, the long term effects this has on the economy. I mean, I just saw a statistic today that 25 percent of our national debt has been has been added in just the last couple of years. I mean, when you start to look at, at how much money, how, the, the trillions and trillions of dollars that we're talking about running up here in spending right now, it's outrageous. And we were worried about this a decade ago, folks. It's only gotten worse. The Democrats don't care. They're in charge. They're going to spend whatever they want to spend of your money. They're going to raise your taxes. And, you know, Joe Biden, we, we've already learned these lessons. We've run these experiments, but they'll pretend like we haven't actually learned anything. Here he is. Here's the president. 
which is amazing that this is the case, and I haven't really gotten used to it yet, but President Biden, that high taxes, no problem. There's no downside. Play seven. Are you, are you afraid that a higher tax would drive corporations to the country's most? Not at all. Look, the tax, because there's no evidence of that. The tax was 36%. It's now down to 21%. And the idea that that, that is bizarre. We were talking about a 28% tax that everybody told was just fair enough for everybody. The idea is, you have, here you have 51 or 52 corporations, the Fortune 500, haven't paid a single penny in tax for three years. Come on, man. Now, it's tough to hear the audio there because you have the play, you know, the whirring of the rotors in the background or whatever. But the, the what, what Biden's saying here is basically yeah, tax doesn't matter. The companies, they're going to pay more tax. No problem. Look, notice how he's saying they pay no tax. But they're talking about the company. They're talking about raising the rate, whatever it is, seven or eight percent. But he keeps talking about companies that are paying no income tax. Or no, no corporate tax, I mean. No, no corporate tax. Well, which is it? Because if Amazon is paying zero because of the army of lawyers and the carve-outs and all the different deal-making, and you raise the corporate tax rate to 28%, guess what? Amazon's probably still going to p- uh, pay zero if you leave all the loopholes in there. So what they're really going to do by raising corporate taxes is raise taxes on on small businesses, smaller companies, woke capital, the major corporations, the major companies, they're still not they're still going to have ways to avoid all this stuff. What do you really think Amazon's going to be paying 28%? I don't think so. Of course not. So those companies support Biden. I mean, you look at who gets money now, the Democrat party can count on the biggest, most powerful companies in the country giving them donations and supporting them. Why is that? Well, because they know that big government approaches to things like this help big business. And that the, the any, any company, I can assure you, if you look at what the Democrats are proposing, any company that's paying zero in corporate tax in recent years is going to keep paying zero but, you know, your company, if you run a relatively small business, let's say you got 30 or 40 or 50 employees or something, your company is going to get just rinsed with with higher taxes. You have to let some people go, less money for investment, less money for your shareholders, your public company. But the mega corporations, the incumbents are protected during all this. But Biden doesn't want you to know about that. And, and it's the same. We talk about the infrastructure. They keep. They do this roads and bridges thing. Here's um, uh, what's his name? Uh, Pete Buttigieg. He's he's going along with this, too. Now, oh, yeah, it's all about having free broadband and having great roads. Play 16. Yeah, there, there are uh, obviously a lot of people on the other side of the aisle saying this is too big, too bold. And then uh, some of our friends on our side of the aisle are saying it should be even bolder. Again, that's a natural part uh, of this conversation in this process. But let me stress, this is the biggest investment in American job creation proposed uh, or, or if, if achieved since World War II. This is a huge deal. And what it would mean uh, to have uh, 10,000 bridges around America replaced, what it would mean uh, or improved, what it would mean to get uh, broadband. 
broadband out to every single American, what it would mean to have zero lead pipes remaining in those water service lines is absolutely enormous, as is that 19 million job figure. 19 million jobs? I mean, if anyone really believes the federal government is going to create 19 million sustainable, well-paid, and productive jobs in this infrastructure program, I mean, I got I got a bridge to sell them to nowhere. This is absurd. But this is how they're this is how they're trying to pitch the public on this using just just fantasy math. I mean, no no serious person can take seriously these claims, but yet this is what's being this is what's being pushed out there by the Democrats to sell this one. Um, Mitch McConnell knows what's going on. Here he is. Play 14. I can't imagine that's going to be very appealing to many Republicans. Infrastructure, however, is appealing. And if we can figure a way to do a paid for, arguably more modest uh, approach, I'd be open to it. But not not what uh, not what I think they're peddling. Yeah. They're they're using this once again. They are are doing this so that they can talk about things that sound reasonable to do things that are unreasonable. That's the Democrat. That's how Democrat legislation works now. You know, they present and this is true about everything they do. They present Joe Biden. Oh, look, he's so moderate. He's so you can trust Joe. That was what they pitched in the election. Now, Joe Biden's going scorched earth against Republicans doing exactly what he can do, whatever he wants to do. Pushing his power to the max. And the the Democrats are. Why do you think they keep talking about getting rid of the filibuster? Because they want rubber stamp situation for whatever legislation they're going to pass. But whether it's covid relief or now infrastructure, they're misdirecting the American people from what the real intent of these actions is. That's why, you know, only I think it was five or maybe it was nine percent of the last uh, bill, the one point nine trillion that they called covid relief was really about COVID relief. And now a $2 trillion infrastructure package, a small percentage of this is actually going to be about roads and bridges, but they're going to talk about roads and bridges endlessly while they're funneling money to you know green energy lunacy. That's what they're going to do. Or green New Deal lunacy you know, and, and renewable energy. Green energy, you know what I mean, same idea. That's the game here, folks. There's a, there's a fundamental dishonesty to the way they approach these matters. They will not tell the public what's really going on. They will not speak honestly about how all this, how all this is happening because they're, they're acting like they have a mandate. Biden, the Democrats, act like they have a mandate to do all this stuff. And you say, well, hold on a moment. It was a pretty narrow election win, actually. Republicans gained seats in the House. Biden ended up winning over whatever it was, five five different states by less than 100,000 votes. And yet the Democrats act like, oh, well, we got to throw out everything Trump Trumpism and replace it with this. It, what the Democrat Party's become is AOC ideas through, you know, old, decrepit man Biden as the vessel. That's what the Democrat Party really is now. And you're seeing it with all their major initiatives and all the all the things that they're pushing out 
for with trillions of dollars of spending attached to it. The level of concern is high and it's about to go to extreme because we know this process and that is it's going to do nothing but get worse, especially because of the lackadaisical approach that the Biden administration is bringing to securing the border. In fact, that, that would be wrong to say. The, the Biden administration has an open border policy and we're seeing the results of it is not just helping unaccompanied minors, it is helping terrorists come across the border, as you pointed out, and also, as you pointed out, those were the ones that were identified and known about. What we do not know are the terrorists who uh, were able to slip through that were not identified. And so this is going to do nothing but increase. And this is exactly why Texas, uh, I created what's called Operation Lone Star, where I'm sending the National Guard as well as the Texas Department of Public Safety to the border. Our own Texas Department of Public Safety in just one month made about 600 arrests of criminals, as well as apprehending about 16,000 illegal immigrants that were turned over uh, to the Border Patrol. And so uh, this is something that's very dangerous right now, but will escalate even more because of the Biden administration's uh, not paying attention to what's going on on the border. It's going to be very dangerous. The border is a mess and going to remain a mess. It's not going to change anytime soon. The, you know, two Yemeni men, and I believe this is what Governor Abbott's referring to here, although there have been other situations like this, but this one was just reported on uh, in the last 24 hours. Two Yemeni men arrested by Border Patrol were, were identified on the FBI's terrorism watch list. Okay, two guys from Yemen came across our southern border and they are on the FBI's terrorism watch list. Now, I know people are going to say, oh, but maybe they're uh, maybe they're uh, it's a false positive on the watch list because there's so many name similarities and variations of name spellings from people from Yemen and other countries like that. But still. This is two guys, two guys on the terrorism watch list just just came across the southern border. Yemenis. We keep we keep hearing about how, oh, it's just people fleeing poverty in Central America. Mostly. Yes. But. The border's open for anybody who wants to come across right now. They can't handle the flow. They can't handle the security needs of the border. Which then brings me to how this is not going to change anytime soon. This is what the Democrats want. And, and that's why I think it's even hard for the American people to conceive of this. But this really is the Democrats want. As men, they, they want, you know, if it's a million people this year coming across our southern border entering illegally and then staying and then becoming illegal when they're no longer in the actual process of claiming asylum because they're not really asylum seekers in the first place. If it's a million people, they think that's fine. 100,000 a month, great. 200,000 a month, great. Maybe it'll be 2 million people. You know, who knows? Democrats have no problem with that. And that's why they never speak of illegal immigration as a problem in and of itself. The problem is we don't have enough people to process the illegal immigrants fast enough, keep them comfortable enough, keep them from spreading COVID to each other and to other people when they're in the American interior, right? That's the issue for them. And there's a security concern, too, about who can come across the border now, as we see from people showing up on the terror watch list. But the Biden administration has no means of changing this because fundamentally they don't want to change the circumstances. One of the biggest trials in recent memory is going on right now in Minneapolis. It goes right to the heart of the BLM movement of policing in America. And we have our friend Jack Posobiec joining us now from One America News, who's following this very closely to bring us up to speed. Jack, as always, great to have you. Hey, Buck. Thanks so much for being here. Yeah, it's really been 
a, a, a roller coaster kind of trial. You're seeing uh, some brass, some of the leadership from the Minneapolis Police Department, the chief, uh, high-ranking lieutenants, you know, re- really denouncing Officer Chauvin. But now that we're starting to get into some of the nitty-gritty about what specific tactics were trained, what was the officer um, you know, taught to use while in the field, talking to other people who were in the field, we're finding that what the higher leadership was saying isn't always exactly the same as what goes on in the streets. And that's actually what we're getting into today, as a matter of fact. So, so give us some of the, the, the details here. What do, you, what do you mean there's this disconnect? So the disconnect, I'll give you a great example, is that the chief of the Minneapolis Police Department testified yesterday and was stating unequivocally that the move that he used was excessive force, that the move that Derek Chauvin used, which was this this knee restraint, uh, was not something that is taught, and that Chauvin had used something that was not approved by the MPD, and that he denounces him completely. He said that from the stand, essentially. But then on redirect, it's very interesting because this this trial, uh, this defense lawyer in the case, Eric Nelson, who, by the way, but just to understand, so you understand the situation everyone else does. Keith Ellison, who's the attorney general of Minnesota, state of Minnesota, is running the prosecution. They've got something like over a dozen prosecutors on the team against Chauvin. Chauvin's got one lawyer. There's one guy, Eric Nelson, up against the whole state, right? And he's got to go on every single witness and every single facet of the case and have some kind of response. So he's got the chief of police up there obviously a very high-ranking guy, and he says, well, how long has it been since you've actually been in the field arresting people? And, he's, and the guy's admitted, well, it's, it's been quite some time. He said, have you ever had to use any force? And he said, well, you know, not really. This is kind of low-level stuff back when I was on the street. And he said, okay, okay. The really interesting thing, Buck, and it was like a scene out of a John Grisham novel, is where he plays two videos side by side, and it was a video that not a lot of people have seen, one was the Facebook video of Derek Chauvin and George Floyd, which you've all seen, horrific video. But the second video was the body camera footage from the police officer, his perspective, who was standing next to Chauvin. So you're behind the car, if you guys can think of the, uh, the image there from, the, so from that perspective. He's t- synced them up so that you can tell it's the same time. And he said to the chief, have you ever heard of something called camera perspective bias? She said, no, I haven't heard about that. What is that? He plays the video side by side and says, when you look on the left side, the Facebook video, it looks like the knee is on the neck. But when you look from the body cam, he said, where does it appear that Derek Chauvin's knee is? And the chief testified, well, it looks like it's on his shoulder blade. And he says, aren't shoulder blade restraints a type of ground control from the prone position that is trained by the Minneapolis Police Department? She said, yes, they are. No further questions. Wow. So that obviously is going to be a, a moment that I think no matter what the end, eventual verdict is, we'll get more attention from folks. We're, we're speaking to Jack Posobiec of One America News Network, and he's following this trial in Minneapolis very closely. Jack, there, there's been a, a lot of focus even before the this trial on the cause of death. Right? You were just talking about the restraint and whether the restraint used by Officer Chauvin First of all, was it on the shoulder blade or the neck, which makes a, a whole lot of difference? But uh, also, is that is that something that uh, would be you know under excessive force, depending on where it was? But 
cause of death has gotten a lot of attention too, whether it was asphyxiation or heart failure uh, related to drug overdose. What do we know about that so far? So there is a huge development in terms of this. Uh, last week, George Floyd's girlfriend, his former girlfriend, took the stand, and it was it was a heartbreaking testimony where she got up and admitted that both her and Floyd were victims of the nationwide opioid epidemic, that they were people who suffered from opioid addiction. They said they had come to it for different reasons. I believe she said Floyd had had back pain from, uh, from sports, that she had had various pains, had gone in for surgery, had become addicted, right? And so you have a starts with a prescription, and then you want to get more. So how do you find more? It's, it's, we've heard the story how many times, right? And she said that actually back in March of 2020, two months before the arrest took place, the incident took place, that Floyd had actually had an overdose incident. Uh, and she had to rush him to the hospital where they were able to revive him. And it was because he was, again, taking this cocktail of fentanyl and methamphetamine so mixing them. Right. And which is what that is the same type of cocktail that it appears on his toxicology report from the final autopsy. Um, she then stated that the person who was sitting in the car with Floyd, so if you go back and watch this video, the police come up, they're sort of asking about these counterfeit bills, Floyd's in the car with somebody. She testified that the man that was in the car with Floyd was his drug dealer. Now, that drug dealer, Maurice Hall, he's been arrested for a completely separate incident uh, and he's now currently in prison. They brought him out via video today in the trial and said, we would like you to testify as to what is going on in this case. What were you doing there that day? Did you sell Floyd drugs, et cetera, et cetera. He took the fifth. He said he's not going to testify in the case. And what, and what the, the commentaries are saying is that essentially he wants to avoid possibly incriminating himself, not only for dealing drugs, uh, whether it's fentanyl, meth, or some kind of mixture of the two, and, and potential third-degree murder charges for selling Floyd the drugs that eventually led to his death. Speaking of Jack Posobiec of One America News Network about just how this Chauvin trial is going, Jack, uh, how much longer is it expected the trial will continue? And based on what you're seeing so far, do you feel like, I know we don't know until we hear that jury verdict, but do you feel like there's a, a clear momentum for either the prosecution or the defense? Well, I would say that, you know, it's very interesting. A, a typical murder trial lasts between one to three days, but that's sort of in the, the routine course of things in the real world. Uh, now, because this is so high profile, there's so much uh, political attention that's been faced on, focused on it. This is probably going to go about another week to a week and a half and possibly even longer, depending on how deliberations are. As far as momentum, uh, keep in mind that these jurors, every juror in America right, or potential juror right, in, in America or certainly in the state of Minnesota has already been biased by the media coverage, by the actions and statements of the city of Minnesota or excuse me, Minneapolis, and even the fact that the city and Mayor Fry and the city council there put out a $27 million settlement with the family of Floyd prior to the trial even beginning. And this was news that obviously was unavoidable for them. And so the fact that there was so much bias once one way or the other prior to this 
really is, is that going to have an effect on the momentum? That's a question you have to ask. That's number one. Then number two, the question of this mob violence that's been seen. It was certainly seen in Minneapolis following the death that was seen during the entire summer of 2020. Some of the most damaging riots America has ever seen. It's estimated $2 billion in damages. Is that playing a role in the minds of the jury? Do they not want that to happen? And obviously, they're probably also worried about potentially being identified if they vote in a way that they know is going to make the mob upset. So there's a lot of factors running in this. That being said, I would say that this defense lawyer, regardless of you know whether anyone's personal feelings on Chauvin and Floyd, you really have to say that this guy is giving it his all. He's not giving an inch. He's really got a response to everything the prosecution has put up. And he hasn't even begun uh, the phase yet where he's presenting his side. So the, the, the way it works is the prosecution, the state goes first and the defense goes second. He hasn't even entered his phase. He hasn't even called a single witness yet. And so everything that he's done up to this point has only been using witnesses that were called by the prosecution. And he's done a very commendable job. So I think that regardless of how this case goes, I, I expect him to be able to find a lot of work. Jack Posobiec of One America News Network here on the Derek Chauvin trial. Uh, Jack, always great to have you, man. We're going to come back here in just a second with our friend Jack Posobiec of One America News to talk about another criminal incident, criminally involved, criminal involved incident uh, from last week, the attack on Capitol Hill. Stick around. Okay, we're back with our friend Jack Posobiec of One America News, also known as Poso, to those of us who who celebrate his work, the life and times of Agent Poso. Uh, Jack, tell me this, man. There, there's been there was so much focus for about a week on what happened in Atlanta, that terrible mass shooting that occurred at those massage parlors. Then there was another mass shooting, and immediately the media jumped on it and suggested that it was a uh, it was a, a white male, likely Trump supporter. Turned out it was an Islamist named Al Issa in Boulder, Colorado. And now we've had another incident on Capitol Hill. And you could see people on social media jumping to the conclusion right away that this was probably somebody tied to the January 6th riot or something like that. But it turns out uh, we know that it was a fellow named Noah Green. What have we learned? What do we know about Mr. Green, uh, who killed a Capitol Hill police officer with his car and ran out with a knife to try to kill more. Well, Buck, it's it's really amazing because, and my heart goes out to the the men and women of the Capitol Police Force, everything they've had to deal with in 2021. I don't think they ever expected uh, their year to start out this way, uh, losing two officers in the span of a couple of months like this. But what's incredible is the way that the media treated the death of Officer Sicknick, uh, we know that the New York Times and other outlets spread a false narrative about a fire extinguisher and him being beaten over the head with that, leading to his death. Now, uh, they're not sure exactly what it was. They've settled on that it may have had something to do with bear spray, but even that is still a little bit unsure because you know, a lot of people were bear sprayed that day, and uh, and he seems to be the only one who succumbed to it. So not really sure exactly what happened there. However, now, However, that case was brought up the entire national media was talking about it he's uh, he was laid in state in the u.s capitol nancy pelosi made a huge deal about it it was brought up in the impeachment of donald trump and now last friday just four days ago a guy by the name of noah green a follower of the nation of islam which is a, a radical organization led by louis farrakhan drove essentially committed a vehicular terror attack into 
the Capitol Police officers. Now, this was at the regular barricades in Washington, D.C. at the Capitol. So uh, for people who I'm sure if everyone knows about the, the barricades of the uh, the steel barricades and the razor wire that have been up lately, along with the National Guard. But typically, just on every any given day, of course, the U.S. Capitol is a, a potential terror attack uh, target. And so the same as the White House or any other national buildings, whereas the U.S. Capitol, it's usually very easy to drive up. It's usually very accessible. So what they have are these pop-up barricades. Uh, they're light and they, they sit in the road. They're, they're steel. And then they'll pop up at various times to block the road, to block the final entryway into the Capitol. And so these were this one in particular was manned by two Capitol Police officers, just about uh, three or four blocks from where my studio is, actually where I'm sitting right now. And uh, this guy drove up, struck the two officers, then came out with a knife intending, uh, presumably, to kill more, and at which point he was shot dead. This guy was a, a follower of the Nation of Islam, the media is, is running around saying, oh, he may have just had some mental issues. The family said he had a, some mental issues, so don't don't worry about it. Don't talk about it. The media has dropped this story altogether. They're not talking about it. They're not talking about the officer who lost his life in that. Uh, there's been no calls for him to lay in state. He's an 18-year veteran of the force there on Capitol Police. And it's very interesting why it is that one of these situations had a national narrative about it when we're not even really sure what happened to him. And I'd very much like to get to the bottom of that. I think the American people deserve an answer on that. But in this case, when it's unequivocal what happened to this officer, the media is not talking about it. And the Democrats and Republicans, other than paying you know some lip service to it, really haven't made it out to be the issue that they ought to, especially when it comes to the fact the Nation of Islam is an organization that over the years has received government funding in terms of they, they run this, uh, believe it or not, you may not know this, Buck, they run this farm and they actually get farm subsidies from the U.S. government. What? I, I kid you not. You can go to townhall.com. Marina Medvin wrote this up. Um, they've received something like $350,000 over the past, uh, past two decades. And it's this farm that they run, and they they receive they apply for farm subsidies and receive it That's from the U.S. government. Something something new. I I'd, I'd never heard that before. Um, let Let me ask you, Jack, before we let you go. Uh, you, you've seen there's been a lot of of uh, coverage the last few days around around Hunter Biden, someone who you know you were covering this story, Parmesan, <laughs> months yeah, months ago, smoking Parmesan crumbs out of the carpet. I know the media takes the most sympathetic view of this guy possible, but it's remarkable to me that there still seems to be. And I mean, that the fact that anyone will hear, as we saw in recent TV interviews, uh, that Hunter Biden will say things like, well, maybe my laptop, it, it, maybe it's real, maybe it's not. Uh, you were on this story at the very beginning. How, how can anyone with a straight face say anything other than obviously they had Hunter Biden's laptop? Well, it's very interesting, right? So Hunter Biden's on his, you know, sort of absolution tour, but he wants absolution without atonement. And Hunter, you got to come clean at some point. We already know about the drugs. Everybody knows about the drugs. What you got to come clean about is the business dealings that you had that we have from your laptop, from your emails, from your text messages. This illegal gun, the situation with the FBI, the Secret Service, the ATF all got involved, and uh, all of his dealings in China, his dealings in Ukraine. Right. 
we weren't interested in his drug use. And it's very tragic. We hope that he gets the help that he needs. But that's not what we were talking about. We were talking about that the money he made, the $50,000 a month he was being paid by a Ukrainian oligarch to sit on the board, a do-nothing job, uh, because he was the son of the vice president in order to get a political favor from his father. This is very clear what was going on here. I think everybody knows this, even uh, you know, Ian Bremmer and some of these guys who are you know, more centrist CNN types would have admitted that it's, it's a clear conflict of interest. It's obviously being done uh, as a form of nepotism to be able to curry favor with, with uh, now President Biden, at the time vice president, and the same deal with all of the money that he received this private equity firm that he was involved with in China, right? This is this is part of the grooming, the families that go on. This is very uh, typical for the CCP, by the way. It's the same thing they do in China. Uh, Wen Jiabao, uh, the former premier of China, is a great example of this, where he is, you know, is always sort of this uh, blue-collar guy. I'm just a blue-collar guy, but all his entire immediate family was getting rich with all the money that was being lavishly laid out to them. And we know what was going on. So Hunter... I'm not interested in asking you about your drug use. I, mean, I, I hope that you, you know, I appreciate that. I'm, I'm 15 years sober myself, but I want to know what were you doing in these other countries? Why were you going there trading on your father's name with all of these foreign deals, Kazakhstan, example, Romania, right? These places. That's what the situation was. The Moscow mayor's yeah. wife. We, know, we, we need we to get answers to those questions. I know that sure. Jack, those you're going to CBS 60 minutes, the rest of it. They just don't seem to really be asking those, do they? No, they they don't seem to have any interest in that. Jack Posobiec, everybody, he's going to stay on at One American News Network. Poso, always good to have you, my friend. Appreciate it, Agent Buck. Take care. The show ain't over yet, folks. It's time for Roll Call. Producer Mark. Buddy, weather's warming up. It's being light longer, you know, outside sunlight, you know, stuff. Things things are looking up. What do you think? You feeling optimistic today? I'm so excited for summer, Buck. It's the best time of the year. Yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be good. It's gonna be good to be outside more, get more time doing more fun things. I'm I'm looking forward to it for sure. So I think this is uh, this is gonna be good. It's gonna be good for everybody. We got all these little more time outside. Okay. I still owe you. I remember from the early days of the pandemic, I said one day producer Mark and I are gonna be drinking margaritas on the street. In New York, things will so so. We still got to do our margaritas on the street at some point. I'm, I'm sure it will happen. Yeah, so maybe by June. That's what I'm thinking. We said that last year. I know. I was going to say it was last <laughs> June that I said it, and now I'm realizing. Well, maybe it'll be this June. So I think if it doesn't happen by this June, something went terribly wrong. Yeah, no, I I think so too. I mean, it means that everyone's gotten into like a Fauci eyed panic or something, or I don't know. You know, the, the, the vaccine turns turns us all into zombies or something bad. I mean, I will say, you know, the Russians are testing vaccines for uh, uh, for pets. And I just feel like this is the perfect beginning to a low budget sci fi thriller. Right. You've got some Russian scientists like Yuri, give me your cat. And like, you know, injects the cat with some some bootleg Russian vaccine knockoff or something. All of a sudden the cat is you know, it turns into like a super cat that like eats people and it's 10 feet tall. Yeah, that definitely sounds like a low budget horror film. Right. Yeah, I think it could work that way for some reason. How much how much would, would you have to get paid to take w- without any additional information? But the Russian government was like, producer Mark, we want you to take the vaccine. 
how much would no. you have to, 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 to take an experimental Russian COVID vaccine? Uh, the number would have to start with a B. It'd be a, it'd be a lot of money, yeah. right? I was going to say maybe in, maybe, in the, maybe in the millions I would consider it, but uh, definitely not less than that because God knows I'm going to need a lot of money for the second head I'm going to grow. Well, if they're offering the, it to you specifically, I wouldn't take it. Oh, yeah, if it was just for me. Yeah. Oh, no, I, I'm talking about how much would they have to pay you even for the vaccine they're going to distribute more broadly just inside of Russia. I wouldn't take that thing. No, I would. I mean, I have the American one. I don't. You know, I, yeah. I trust yeah, the American already, one. I don't trust the Russian one. You already got it. What do you see? You had a sore arm, right? Other than that, you were good. Yeah, other than that, I was completely fine. Yeah, I'm going to get the. Did you? Oh, you got the Johnson and Johnson. Right? I'm going to go get. I'm going to. I'm a Pfizer man myself. So, I think that one had the least side effects because I know a couple people who have gotten the Moderna one, who after the second dose have like felt like they had COVID for a day though, and then Ooh. they were fine. Ew, we don't want that. But you know what? I'd rather have it for a day and feel a little crappy than. Uh, you know, a week or two, like you did. Oh man, I was ten ten days of rough stuff for the Buckster with the COVID. So that's where we are. All right, all right. Let's let's go to see what we got here from our friends in Roll Call World. Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. Team Buck at iHeartMedia.com. That's how we do all this stuff here. And let's get right to it, shall we? We have Rob writes, welcome back, Buck. I was hoping to hear your thoughts on New York leading the way in COVID passport policy. You obviously don't need to make vaccination mandatory by law if you institute a system where shot compliance is the only way to directly access everyday goods and services. The counterfeiting and sale of current vax documentation is already underway with everything from test results to vax site shot cards being available for purchase. This is the bifurcation of society that leftist collectivist sycophants dream of. Divide and conquer works for a reason. New Hampshire, Florida, and Tennessee are now drafting state legislation to preemptively prohibit such a virus passport system from being used in their states. Do you believe there will be enough unified pushback from the states to stop the passport system movement? Best show out there, Shields High. Thank you so much, Rob. Uh, for your excellent taste in radio and podcast programming, which is the Buck Sexton Show, which is the best podcast out there right now. And I, I do keep asking this because it really does matter for all of us uh, here. Please do tell anybody you know listens to podcasts, hey, check out the Buck Sexton Show. You'll learn a lot. It's interesting. It's engaging. It's fun. It's the best it's the best conservative talk podcast out there. All right, so let's get let's get folks on board here. Let's tell people what needs to happen. So please do spread the word. Um, it's why our numbers keep going up every month and it's because of you guys. Cause like I said, I got, I have no budget right now at all. I mean, and, and producer Mark needs a new pair of shoes folks. So let's, let's, let's get some new people listening to the show so we can get producer Mark some, uh, what, what are you, uh, are you a, uh, Havaianas or a rainbow sandals guy in the summer months? I just go with sneakers all the time. Oh, sneakers. Okay. You don't, you don't, you're not a sandals at the no, beach guy. I'm not. Uh, okay, I wear my sneakers enough. and take them off when I sit down. You know, we all, I gotta get you. Uh, I gotta get you these these new slippers from uh, Mike Lindell. W- w- are you a slippers guy? If oh, I yeah. get you some uh, Mike Lindell My Pillow slippers, will you make? Because I got a pair. I love them. Buck, for the last year, I've exclusively been wearing slippers. No, yeah. Because I don't yeah. leave the house. I'm just saying, my, yeah. my My Pillow slippers are amazing. So we'll have to get you. We'll get you. Uh, you already had your birthday, but we'll get you some for Christmas or for Hanukkah, rather. I mean, you could just get them for me in general. That would be good. 
I'm sure I can Mike, look it up. Exactly. Generous Mike Lindell, Lindell will uh, gift me some pair, a pair. Why not? They're very, they're very cozy. That's the other thing. I've, I've realized my whole wardrobe has shifted to sweatpants, sweatshirts, uh, thick, warm socks. You know, I, I walk around in those instead of uh, uh, there's a whole section. I have a whole closet that is suits and ties and things like that. I'm going to have to get it all professionally clean because it's just so dusty. I haven't worn it in a year. I'm legitimately worried. I have a couple of weddings coming up this summer. I don't think any of my suits fit me. There's no way. Oh, man. Yeah, yeah I, I got I to get on that, too. They, I think they call it cutting. We're def- we, we were bulking, as the fitness folks say, but it was a dirty bulk, producer about, Mark. I don't think they would call this a bulking. <laughs> well, you know what I mean? We need a dirt, dirty bulk. Uh, where you where you get bigger from eating ice cream, not from increasing your protein macros to the you know proper number to fit with your workouts. Um, but yeah, I I don't even know, man. Especially my summer suits, I usually trim down a little bit for summer anyway. So my summer suits tend to be a little bit uh, leaner than my winter suits. But I don't even think I'm not even sure the winter suits are going to fit right you now. You have so. different suits for summer and winter. Yeah, producer Mark, I'm I'm not a barbarian, of course. I mean, I don't wear suits often enough to have different suits. I just have a couple of suits. Yeah, summer weight fabric versus versus wool for winter. But you know, I, I'm I'm a suit guy. I used to go when I worked at CIA. We had to wear jacket and tie to the office every day. Think about that, man. I had to show up jacket and tie, which basically meant a suit. I mean, you could wear a blue blazer and Dockers or something, but you know, then then you look like you know you work for like Mutual of Omaha or something, right? Yeah. So, you know, I, I wear a suit every day. And, uh, yeah, that's, that's how I would Luckily, do it. Luckily, so. I pr- picked a profession where even where I w- when I was in work, the nicest I'd have to dress is a collared shirt and some khakis. There you go. Yeah. All right. Well, Rob. Uh, oh, Rob, sorry. I got, to, I got distracted from your question, which was about vaccine passport movement. Yes, you're correct. The push now is going to be for the private sector. To, to be leveraged to force you to have a vaccine passport situation. Some states are standing up against this. We've, we've noted Florida, Texas, and I believe there are others that are also considering this. But I, I really, I think the only way that this will stop is when people realize that some states are unnecessarily inconveniencing their residents a lot more than others, and then there'll be pushback from people that live in those blue states. But I don't know. I think it's going to be tough, Rob. It could go either way right now. They're going to, you know, New York, California, they're going to be very stubborn about this stuff as they have been all along. And they're probably going to uh, have these vaccine passports from the private sector side, at least. And there'll be national. What's really going to be interesting will be national uh, corporations. It's going to be a little bit like, uh, well, like uh, gun laws or, you know, you know, I, I used to see if you wanted to buy in the back of like a men's magazine, uh, this could get really weird quickly, but I'm just saying if, if you wanted to buy um, ninja weapons back in the day, this is a true thing, producer Mark, you could send, uh, I believe what are called nunchakus or nunchucks, as people refer to them in this country, or shuriken throwing stars to a lot of states, but you couldn't have them in California or New York. You couldn't ship them to California or New York. And I think a few other states, Connecticut usually is pretty strict on this sort of stuff. So you may have a patchwork situation like that. 
of these different uh, different vaccine passport uh, passport situations state by state. So you'll need it in some states, but not others. I think that will play out for a while um, and and it will be for companies, but it'll be companies will want you. You know, if you work for, let's say, Uber, which is a very left wing, very progressive company like so many of these others, if you work for Uber, you may find yourself um, uh, you, you may find yourself in a situation where you have a vaccine passport or rather you, you have to show a vaccine passport to be an employee, to be a driver for Uber in all the states that don't prohibit it. So if you work for Uber in New York, you got to have your vaccine passport to go in every day. And maybe as a as a passenger. Well, how hard would that be for them to require? I think they might do that as well. They already I will never forget. And this is why Uber comes to mind. I got I've never tried to get on somebody's car as a whether it's a taxi or an Uber without a mask on because that's the rule. And I don't want like I don't want people to feel uncomfortable. And, I, you know, I'm not trying to be unreasonable about stuff. Right. I mean, if you're going to be in a car, close quarters, people. I think it's unnecessary, especially because, well, it's totally unnecessary for me now because I'm immune and I can't get get or give the virus to anybody. But, you know, I, I get it. I'm willing to make some concessions, right? Outside, no. In a car with one person, it makes them feel better. But I had to take photos of myself for a while to show mass compliance. They made me, the app made me take a selfie to prove that I was masked up before I could get into an Uber because some driver apparently complained and, and didn't even pick me up because I didn't have a mask on. I had a mask. I just wasn't wearing it outside, but I had it on my face at my chin and I would pull it up before I get into the car. And that wasn't good enough for this guy. So he complained officially. And then I had to take mask selfies so I could ride. Like, I think it's going to happen like that, Rob. There's going to be all these different stupid rules and regulations. But in uh Places like Florida and Florida and uh, Texas, rather, I think that there'll be requirements that they not have vaccine passports. All right. You know, I know we're in the middle of roll call. I meant to get into this and I mentioned it at the very top of the show, very beginning of the show today that Justice Thomas is saying it is time to regulate big tech. And, And part of this really is that the the censoring of the president of the United States by Twitter and now. Twitter's decision that they will not allow uh, the president, even a former president, even if he wants to run again, to be back on Twitter on that platform. And this gets into access to the public square and free speech in very fundamental ways. I, I, I will come back to this tomorrow on the show. I meant to get into today, but I got caught up in so many other topics and with our guests and everything that I just I didn't get into it the way I wanted to. But uh, it's going to take time. But big tech has gone t- Big tech censorship on the social media platforms has gone too far. I I think that's clear at this point. Um, it the, the backlash will take time to really manifest, and the actions that need to be taken are, are it's gonna that's gonna require some effort and time to get it all together. But I, people have been saying break them up. I don't think break them up is the is the way to do it so much as it's regulate them like a utility. So, yeah, Facebook is Facebook, but Facebook is going to be like the like uh, like the phone company. You know, it, it provides a platform and, you know, and this is going to be hard because, well, then it's Facebook operating as a private business or does it have limitations on how much money it can make? 
Well, guess what? We're going to regulate it. We'll come up with those regulations. Here's an idea, just content neutrality as a matter of law because it's a utility. There you go. And that's what we thought we had. That's actually what social media platforms were like 10 years ago. So we need to do what we can to work uh, to get back there. All right. Brett, I think Biden is or will soon realize that Twitter censoring Trump was a really bad idea. Rather than having Trump's rhetoric to distract from the news cycle, Biden's actions are up for full view and scrutiny. Trump being silenced also causes people to have to ponder his policies compared to Biden, and only the most virulent haters will still be unable to see how effective Trump was and how crappy, he wrote poor, but I just changed the word to crappy, Biden is. Shields High from Yorktown, Virginia. Well, Brett, thank you so much for writing in. Um, I think they're going to realize that censoring Trump on Twitter was a bad idea because now they've 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 awoken a sleeping giant. But it, it seems right now like the giant isn't doing very much. Give it time. We know now that the social media companies are effectively enemies of conservatism and enemies of free speech. That's what they've become. They're 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 openly hostile to the free exchange of ideas and they are openly partisan in the way they enforce their their rules and and their terms of service. So that's going to result in some major changes here. It's going to take time, though. It's not even the next year. I think this, I'm talking about five to ten years out. But these social media companies will 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 rue the day that they became open Democrat advocacy organizations that are hurting one side and not the other. Uh, let's see here. Michael, I view LeBron James as I do Fauci, just politics instead of COVID. They see what they want to see, never evaluate either what they see or say and get media attention and no questioning or or query. Um, Michael, I don't really see that comparison, but I I appreciate you writing in, man. I'll, I'll think some more on that one. Matthew, Buck, there's one thing you keep forgetting that occurred in key places in 2020 that led to the crime spike. That would be bail reform, preventing criminals from being held in many cases. 2020 was an insanely busy year, so it's easy to forget that. Thanks for the great show. Keep up the great work. Well, my uh, Matthew, thank you for writing in and sharing your thoughts and appreciate it. And yes, bail reform happened in places like New York, and that was certainly a bad idea. But I think there are other factors that are even bigger contributors. Team, we will be back tomorrow, same time and place. Pass the buck. Get a friend, get a family member to listen to the Buck Sexton Show. Shields high.